Welcome, everyone. On this week's episode, Tim and I count down our top three takeaways from season three. In this episode, we discuss strategies to build rapport, developing intuition within the body, compassionate presence, low tension as a default resting state, negative transfer of training, general population versus performance training, momentum versus progression, practical versus optimal, and reframing performance. Thank you for listening to season three. We truly appreciate your support. We will be back for season four in just a few weeks. But in the meantime, please feel free to reach out to Tim and I on Instagram. We also hope that you have enjoyed season three as much as we have enjoyed recording it. And while you're thinking of it, go ahead and leave a five-star review on your pod player of choice. Doing so will let us continue to devote time to the show for many seasons to come. As a thank you for listening to the season three podcast, I have compiled all of my notes from each episode into a full ebook titled Reframe Performance, Four Simple Ways to Keep Your Clients Working Out Even When They Are in Pain. In this free ebook, I talk about how we have the power to help persistent pain clients in their fitness and health journeys with both communication strategies and changes to our training modalities. I'm really proud of all of the information I put together for you, and you can get my new free ebook using the link in this week's episode show notes or by going to Instagram on my profile at dr.michellebowen and getting the link. The ebook both talks about lessons learned from this season and strategies for implementation. So go check it out, and thank you for listening to Season 3. So without further ado, here's our Season 3 finale episode. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Michelle. How the hell are you? Little, little coming up from being down in weather, but we're doing pretty good here. Um, I can't believe we are at the end of season three. This is the grand finale here. We're going to count down our three biggest takeaways from the season. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this past season. Yeah, I think I've I've had a really nice time recording all these episodes, uh, kind of listening to them back and, you know, really just a, a very genuine thank you to everyone that's been listening along with us for uh, for season three. And hopefully we continue to provide some value with this episode, too. Yes, absolutely. I like you said, I have immensely enjoyed listening to your guest episodes Recording these podcasts, I feel like I've learned so much in regards to our our theme with uh, training with persistent pain clients this this past season, especially implementing it, which we're gonna talk about today too. Yeah, it's also it's been kind of funny from like a personal standpoint. Like I'm on the the precipice of of my trip out to Indy to kind of really deep dive with with Bill with my own journey with persistent pain. So it's kind of it's been funny because I feel like the past four or five months that we've been recording have kind of coincided with a particular phase of that journey. And now it's like not only a phase shift with, you know, moving on to a new season of the podcast, um, but also kind of taking the, the next step in my own journey. So exciting stuff all around. Yes, absolutely. Talk about what you anticipate uh, shipping out to Indy in a few weeks. Shipping out to Indy, I anticipate having a lovely time in the middle of the country in the dead of winter for uh, <laughs> close to three months. No, I think it'll be fun. Um, I know that I'm going to learn a lot. I know that I'm going to, I know that Bill and I are going to try as hard as we possibly can to modify my movement in such a way that I can get back to doing stuff like running. And I would say for me in 2024, probably the ability to run or not to run is going to be the deciding factor as to whether or not I I pursue any kind of further surgery. Um, but right now I'm kind of trying to just have the next step in mind. And I think that, you know, 
as a patient and we're going to work together. Uh, I'm going to work with Bill a couple times a week and then probably go in for, you know, some observation, hopefully treat some people together. So I think regardless, it's going to be an immense time of learning for me. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic, but realistic about sort of getting the, the treatment and the clinical and the movement outcome that I want. Love it. What's the threshold of running that you would like to hit? Like, you're not talking that I want to be able to go run 20 miles or something like that. Do you want to just sprint or do two mile run without like experiencing any symptoms? I was pretty okay. But, you know, back when we started this podcast, which if memory serves, was like 2020, late 2020, um, I could go to the track and do a day of sprints fairly aggressively. And I was a little sore like later that day, the next day. And then I could do like another run of like three to five miles. I think for me, knowing my athletic history, that's a pretty low bar, um, but I would be incredibly grateful to get that back. And I think that could serve as a springboard for doing a whole, like, I mean, that's, that could be masters uh, track and field. You know, once I turn 40, that could be a lot of other things where I, I really think I could still uh, enjoy a lot of facets of a physical existence. So it's probably something like that. Um, but then there's also, there's some undeniable upside there. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, there's no reason that I, you know, might not be able to run up mountains and, and join you on some of these long things. But, uh, to your point, that's, that's certainly not the goal. If we're able to get there, fantastic. But I, you know, I had close to 20 years of my life where I was pretty much able to run whatever, run up and down, whatever with, uh, with impunity. And I really enjoyed that. And I think it, it formed the basis for, who I am today. Um, but we'll see. It's it's going to be exciting. That, that's amazing. And uh, maybe this spring I'll come out to Colorado. We could at least at minimum go for a hike. Yeah, I, I might I might drag you up a climbing wall too. So we can get some Colorado activities in. That's, that's perfect. I took my trekking poles out yesterday for the first time. And I was like, I was like watching some video of me. I, I had some recording done. And I was like, oh man, I, I need some work with these. It's I need to learn how to use them before I can start training with them. That's the biggest. Yeah, running with them is a little uh, I don't know, it's somewhat counterintuitive. Like you're trying to maintain contact on the ground longer than you want to. Yeah. Well, it's all uphill. That's what I would be using. Oh, for. interesting. Power okay. hiking. It just on like steep inclines. Cause when I have the the race in August in the Swiss Alps, that's that's what I'm gonna be using them for. I see. I know a lot of trail runners I work with like them on the downhill. Yes, I practice some on the downhill too. I kind of liked it. It takes takes some of the the impact off. But that's okay. the, you're you're just you're full board trail runner now, Michelle. I'm all in. Let's see how it goes. Um, all right, so we're gonna do a top three countdown here of our takeaways from the season. Also, I want to mention that by the time this episode comes out, I will have my full ebook out, which is basically my summary of all of the things that our guests and you and I have talked about over the course of this um, season and like practical strategies on how to implement it with the people that other trainers and therapists work with every day. So, Make sure you look out for that ebook. It's called Reframe Performance, of course. And uh, all right, let's knock these off. You're you're up first. What is what is the cost of that ebook, Michelle? Oh, it's free. Oh, so maybe you know. I think we're 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 past the holidays at this point. But maybe if mm -hmm. someone's shopping around for like an early Valentine's Day present, <laughs> um, perhaps a very that early St. Patrick's time. Day gift. Yeah. Your Valentine's Day stocking remains unstuffed. Maybe shove that ebook in there. There's nothing like a gift of a PDF ebook e to send someone. I'll tell you that <laughs> for the person in your life that you love romantically. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, are we kicking off this countdown. Yeah, you're up. Okay, I would like to start with. Uh, I don't have a pithy title for this, but essentially the notion that for when dealing with folks that are in persistent pain, what the sensitized structure is likely matters very, very little. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of people come seek me out in order to move better, move with less pain, and they'll just have this litany of, you know, radiography, MRI reports, 
everything trying to figure out like, you know, is, is this my PCL? Is this my meniscus? Is this a hamstring tendon? And most of the time, what I've found is that while we do care about, you know, what, what the sensitized structure is, like what is the thing that might be generating that nociceptive stimulus? I think the better question to ask is why that structure or why that grouping of structures might be under consistent load, because then we can start to form a hypothesis of either modifying activity or including, you know, new exercises, new activities to change movement enough that we start to offload that sensitized structure. Um, this is something that Bill and I, Bill Hartman and I talked about um, back in uh, an episode this season, but but I've just kind of found that popping up time and time again in my work with clients and kind of in our conversation with podcast guests this season. And I think that's that's sort of a large type one error that a lot of trainers, coaches, and therapists make is thinking that they need an exact diagnosis, that they need to know the exact structure that's implicated in order to form a coherent treatment or training strategy. What are your thoughts on that, Michelle? I love that. That kind of reminds me of a of few things. One, it's always the same thing when I hear clients go to a physical therapist or something. It's like my shoulder hurts and it's immediately the first thing they say to them is this diagnostic statement. Oh, it's your rotator cuff. It's always like this clear crystal thing. And then, hey, these are exercises we're going to do for that. Um, but I think it also reminds me of Lucy's episode when she talked about an example of a client who went to go see a physical therapist and she went with her and she brought all of her imaging and notes from other doctors and the therapist basically just took it threw it aside and said this stuff doesn't matter and so to your point <laughs> you're like hey it doesn't matter and that's an important important thing it's like you can think it doesn't matter but there may be a time and a place where just listening to their story and validating is where you need to start of saying hey this is important thank you for bringing this kind of going through it with that person and then putting it aside and saying, okay, this is how we move forward now. Um, so I think that's also important to mention as well. 100%. I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot in 2023 is continuing to improve strategies to build rapport with clients. Cause I mean, that just leads to a myriad of beneficial outcomes, you know, whether you're a business owner or just trying to give people the best care possible. Um, but if they come to you with the, you know, like 18 pages of whatever, the worst thing you can do is just pick it up and say, none of this matters. <laughs> I think the best thing that you can do is really quickly go through it, um, fully listen to their story, validate whenever appropriate, gently push back whenever appropriate. And then you do your own assessment, you draw your own conclusions. Um, but I think that I think where this thing comes from is because I think a lot about just kind of like how the healthcare system is is constructed. And it's like when you go see a provider in network, there has to be something called an ICD-10 code uh, like attached to that encounter in order for insurance to pay. So as providers, we're incentivized to attach a somewhat arbitrary diagnosis code. And that's like the first thing you see when you open up a patient's chart or when you get like a referral from a surgeon is this diagnosis. It's the first thing the patient sees too if they look at their information. So I think it's a little bit of like a labeling issue. Um, and then also from a physical therapy standpoint, it's like a lot of these insurance-based clinics, in order to remain profitable, a physical therapist has to see like six patients an hour or like, you know, treat like four patients at, at, at the same time. And then the diagnoses might actually be useful because they can just put them in the buckets and give them a somewhat standardized program. And maybe it works 50% of the time. So, you know, you, they go into like, okay, this is my rotor, rotator cuff protocol. This is my labrum protocol. This is my thoracic outlet protocol. And I think that the combination of those two things has gotten us into this place where now patients are just expecting like, no, I need to get a really accurate diagnosis in order to treat this uh, movement impairment or pain impairment. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I've always said there's a little bit more of a pressure position and an urgency working with someone like yourself versus me. And I feel like it's an advantage for me. 
one, I just have more time with people. And two, I don't have a pressure on me to provide a diagnosis or, and I certainly don't tell people I directly treat pain where it's like, I just am able to help people train maybe with pain and I can communicate with it. But your point about strategies to build rapport is the biggest key, um, especially with trainers and therapists. But there's definitely that that difference between like diagnosing something and then working with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something I've, I've mentioned this book a lot in episodes this season, but Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I think as quickly as possible, I try to get my clients on the same page as, hey, none of this is for sure. Even though yeah. I'm fairly confident in what I'm seeing from a movement standpoint, there's a certain probability that these interventions are going to have the effect that we want or they're not, and that's okay. And I think that you're really trying to plug that in early enables you to have a much more authentic and honest um, dialogue, rapport in a sense with a client. Because if they're expecting you to be 100% certain and to give them an intervention with 100% efficacy, it's like that yeah. does not exist in the healthcare space. It doesn't really exist in any space. Yes. Great point. Fantastic first takeaway there. Okay. I'm going to give you, my <laughs> number three takeaway, which would be um, kind of this is taken from Bill, like the term exercise empathy or from Lisa Lewis, um, compassionate presence. And I always think about my experiences as both an athlete and a trainer. When I did that episode with Dan Sanzo, when I have sessions with him, I feel like I'm very aware that I can make changes in my own body because I understand what we're trying to do and how to make those changes. And sometimes I lack empathy or an understanding that other people, especially the people I work with, like a general population, don't have the same understanding of their body. So they may have trouble both in making little adjustments, tweaks, and changes in exercises, and trouble connecting the dots between how they feel and what they've been doing, right? Like uh, Lucy gave the example in the episode of someone saying they have trouble sleeping, but then if you dig a little deeper, they're drinking coffee at 10 p.m. And they they can't make that connection with their body. Um, so I this takes me through a few things this season that I've kind of connected with all that were practical strategies. One would be, this is from Lisa Lewis, make sure you have your own practice. And why this is so important is because when I'm doing the, we'll just hypothetically say like a 90-90 breathing drill. So I'm laying on the ground, I have my feet up on the wall, my knees and hips are at 90 degrees. You're trying to get someone's hamstrings to activate a little bit. And you're trying to teach someone to tuck their hips. Now, a lot of the go-to things you'll see people do is just clench at the abs, right? Create some tension there. But if you have your own practice, you can understand, okay, this is how my body felt doing it. And now I can communicate better to my clients about how they can make adjustments and maybe different language that you can say to make changes. Season three of the More Train, Less Pain podcast was dedicated to exploring lessons, tactics, and strategies that can help us more effectively manage those in persistent pain who want to continue to move well, look great, and do cool stuff. But unfortunately, this season has come to an end. So now what? Before we get into season four, how can we reflect back on so many great guests from Mike Boyle to David Gray to Sam Leffers to Lucy Hendricks to Tony Jenicor to Bill Hartman and the list goes on. I don't know about you, but I had pages and pages of notes of lessons learned. As a thank you for listening to the podcast, I have compiled all of my notes from each episode into a full ebook titled Reframe Performance, Four Simple Ways to Keep Your Clients Working Out Even When They Are in Pain. In this free ebook, I talk about how we have the power to help persistent pain clients 
in their fitness and health journeys with both communication strategies and changes to our training modalities. I'm really proud of all the information I put together for you, and you can get my new free ebook using the link in this week's show notes or by going to my Instagram handle at dr.michellebowen and getting the link in my profile. The ebook both talks about lessons learned from this season and strategies for implementation. So go check it out and thank you for listening to season three. And now, back to the show. So having your own practice first and then also... And you mean by that, you mean like movement practice. Movement. Like you, 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 you yourself should be trying to reacquiring movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not business exactly. practice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah business cool. Practice. So you can have an understanding of your own body and help people communicate and communicate that a little bit better with what they're doing. And then also with like Lucy's episode, both providing validation to someone's experiencing, acknowledging, accepting clients' emotional experience, and that will make them more open to new things. Um, so these are communication strategies. And then just being curious. So asking questions about how someone's feeling um, with exercises, how they're doing, and that all of these things will provide you better exercise, empathy, and compassionate presence. That's my, that's my number one. Yeah, I, I, I like that quite a bit. It, it does make me think of something that Doug and I talked about um, in our episode, which is we, you know, we kind of both talked about how we've had long-standing struggles with pain of some kind, me with hip stuff, him with back stuff. And he said that that's probably given us a an unreasonable amount of intuition when it comes to our own bodies, as opposed to like what things are going to feel good, what things aren't going to feel good, what things will probably feel like, what to do when we feel certain things. It's like those, those grooves are very well worn in our brains. Mm -hmm. And the point that he was making was when you're working with a certain type of client in persistent pain, like more of that archetype of the person that just refuses to move, they lack that intuition because they haven't even put themselves on the starting line to get those repetitions to develop that. So we're not trying to create someone that's reliant on physical therapy or chiropractic or whatever for life. We're trying to develop a sense of intuition within people so that they can be their own advocate be their own decision maker and kind of like like uh, continue to live as active of an existence as possible within the confines of you know their structure their pathology their pain and i i just think that was a very succinct and accurate way to describe at least like what i feel like i'm trying to do with most of my clients no that that's a great example and i also think of you know toting the line between explaining too much, but also explaining enough to clients so they know why you're doing something, but how you want them to get there. So like, you know, if I'm saying, hey, I want to see if we can get our glutes working. Well, a lot of clients, what they'll just do is just they'll squeeze their glutes. Like, oh, you know, I can feel that. And then, no, I want you to try to do it with little tension. And then this is how we're doing it. Why? And then see if you can make this change in your body. And trying to groove that a little bit more with communication. I love that. And as a quick side note, uh, <laughs> drinking coffee at 10 p.m. I've recently learned is a decidedly East Coast phenomenon. Oh yeah, it's because we just go 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 here. No, so I was so Christmas Eve. My uh, my parents, who my dad's from Brooklyn originally, and they lived in New York for like 20, like I was born in New York. Um, they had another couple over that was from New Jersey. And every time I do anything with my parents, when dinner wraps up, my dad's like, anyway, can I get you a coffee? I never once have said yes. It's been 15 years of him offering coffee after. And then he says this after dinner and the, and the couple just lights up. The couple's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no one does that out here. And I just watched in horror at like <laughs> 10, 15 as these four people in their like late 60s, early 70s were just chugging coffee. It was the most insane thing I've seen. <laughs> Yeah, uh, is it at least decaf or no? No, no, they go fully oh, caffeinated. No. My dad does his PT exercises and he just goes to bed. It's wild. It's nuts. That is wild. I wonder what uh, they're Yeah, for real. 
get an aura right. ring on those bad boys. <laughs> All right. Uh, so my number two through line from season two is, again, and I, I apologize, I probably should have titled these a little bit more uh, succinctly, but my, my point is the goal with most movement is is a state of low tension as the default or resting state. Um, and this is something that I think earlier in the season, Sam and I talked about, but it's certainly something that was featured prominently in the Bill episode. Me and John Pope talked about this a little bit, but I, I think this has to do a lot with what we call, you know, superficial muscular strategies or patterns of tension that a lot of people exhibit where it's like these big muscles seem to be perpetually on. And I mean, off the top of my head, it's like calves, glutes, quads, back, pec, abs, neck, like all of these areas that seem to be unable to turn off when they don't really have a reason to be on. I think Sam and I got here because we were talking more about like psychological states of being and that if we if we don't have the ability to rest or relax in a state that's a little bit more open and receptive, then we're not going to get a lot of the outcomes that we want from a health standpoint, from a mindfulness standpoint, from a performance standpoint. So from a, from a psychological vantage point, what he's trying to do with clients is to peel away these loops that are sort of always running in their head so that they can enjoy more of this peaceful, calm, base state so that they can then react to stressful stuff when it happens. And I think that there is a direct corollary with physical existence here, where it's like, especially when we're designing resets or mobility programs, most of what I think about now is how can we use this to ramp down activity in muscles that don't need to be so active right now? And it's like you and I have talked about this, like the the struggle with like the perpetual butt squeeze or walking around with like five out of 10 tension in your abs at all times. Um, <laughs> but I think this is especially salient with persistent pain where maybe as a guarding mechanism, people are going to generate a lot of tone around an infected area or generate tone that prevents them from moving into a particular position. And so the goal has to be, how can we give them movement and positional variability back? How can we ramp down activity and muscles that don't need to be there 23 hours of the day? And then final step in that process, how can we teach them to like really activate these muscles, but then come out of that state of activation? Um, and this is something like we've talked about this in a lot of episodes over the past three seasons. This is something like I think the PRI people do a great job talking about, or at least they did at courses in like 2013, 2014, this notion that no, your activity, like your exercise, your training can, can make you more patterned, but that's probably not an issue as long as you can do some stuff and come back out of that and kind of reform into a, you know, a human being that can just sort of stand and walk and breathe and exist, um, with a, with a relatively low amount of tension. I like that a lot. I've also heard David Gray talk about that a little bit, like fighting tension with tension. And he also gave the, I feel like the go-to example is the 90-90 breathing when he talked about um, trying to remove tension in that exercise, but then people just crunching their abs or finding tension somewhere else to like make a, like get their hamstrings on, right? But it's actually... If I just crunch down and tuck my hips underneath me, that's, that's not doing what you, your intention, right? Um, and then the other thing that kind of reminds me of, especially in like the practical sense, is almost how I basically have reframed, if you will, my performance this past year of kind of dropping off from weightlifting because of such not negative, but like it made me feel a lot different as I was trying to do what I wanted to do, which was run. So if I lifted, even if it could be nothing crazy the day before, uh, the next day, it would just, I would have a lot of neck tension and things like that. So a lot of my movement preparation or 
outside of running things were designed towards bringing that tension down to allow movement to occur better and what I was trying to get better at at running. And I've had a lot of success with just that that switch in the mindset or purpose towards my training. Yeah. And I th- this is such a massive paradigm shift with yeah. clients because they'll do bill talks about this in this episode they'll do this thing where they come in and they'll be like well deadlifting never used to hurt my back and they'll think that it's like one particular moment in time that that gave them the injury or gave them the like the movement presentation but in actuality what was happening over the years is like every time a person you know deadlifted heavy they were they were learning to move in a particular way that was really useful for lifting that weight but that same way is probably not super useful for standing, walking, breathing, like d- doing everything else. So it's like, no, no, it wasn't it wasn't that particular rep or that particular workout. It's just like you've been taking deposits out of the movement system for the past 15 years. And now that the chickens have kind of come home to roost. And instead of this being like a depressing notion, I actually think this is somewhat empowering because it, it lets you fill your movement practice with activities where you can kind of be clear-eyed about the the risk and reward of each activity. I know if I climb three or four days in a week, my hips are going to hurt a little bit worse. I know if I do a little bit of running, my hips are going to wor- hurt a little bit worse. That's okay. It doesn't mean I, I shouldn't do those things. It means that I also need to include other things to be able to bring that system down. And also you need to acknowledge that there's just an upper limit to these things. Like if if three days a week you do, you know, 10 sets of 10 really heavy deadlifts, there probably isn't any amount of movement resets or massage therapy or nine hours of sleep that can get that system to calm back down. So instead of taking this information as like a don't do anything ever, it's just like, no, realize that everything you do, everything you do has primary and secondary con- consequences. And David Gray is really, really effective at talking about these like negative, like the negative transfer of training, he calls it, where it's like learning to deadlift a heavy barbell will make you better at deadlifting a heavy barbell. But there might be a negative transfer to your gait, your breathing, your change of direction. Uh, and that's OK. That It's a specific tool. It's not this panacea of just get stronger and everything is going to get better which I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people are still in that mindset of just getting stronger is the most effective way for, for all things in life. Uh, yes, 100%. Um, and it's an easy example when you talk about someone who has a specific goal outside of the weight room. Like We're talking about me, my running performance, your climbing performance, and what the weight room is supporting or not supporting in those types of activities. What about our general population clients who, specifically a few people, who come to see me two days a week for 60 minutes, but then they have a desk job the rest of the week, have no outside movement strategies or activities? Like, toting the line between giving them stimulus and still trying to get some fitness, but also working still on their movement, but then like those activities outside of the weight room are just locking them in elsewhere. What do you think about that? I think, I think it's an interesting point. Um, I'm going to go on a mild tangent here, but I'm, I'm rereading rethinking the big patterns by Pat Davidson. Yeah. Hopeful, hopeful season four guest. <laughs> um, I just think it's one of the, I mean, it's it, that book should be taught in like the first semester of physical therapy school, but he has this chapter about treating gen pop. And he says that by and large, like gen pop will come in with whatever goals they, they say they're coming in with. But like what gen pop really wants is to have a little bit more muscle and to have a little bit more aerobic capacity. So, yeah. so I think, it, I think they become really interesting because like the meat and potatoes of the session have to be doing things that will actually get them appreciable muscular stimulus and then eventually appreciable aerobic stimulus while not negatively impacting their movement profile or whatever injuries they're currently dealing with. And so I kind of think it's like it's different when you're talking about athletes that have like another activity where they're bought into this concept of let's use the gym just to improve movement so that you can do your other activity better. I find it's almost it's easier to get that type of person to do resets and to do, I don't know, like a lot of like my Camperini's deceleration work because it's like, oh, I'm I'm linking this to the thing I'm already doing. 
But I think for true gen pop, it's like you got to give them a taste of like, this is what fitness is. You got, I mean, even if it's something like a heels elevated goblet box squat and like a alternating single arm dumbbell bench press, it's like get them the, the sensation of working hard, but maybe choose activities that they can do and try really hard at that, that won't blow them up so much. Exactly. Cause like, it's really fun to talk about like performance and we're actually going to take this on as our season four theme. Most likely we haven't finalized it yet, but like specific preparation for specific activities, but we can't also forget like gen pop is like much different for that because my discipline and motivation is solely for running. So it's so easy for me to get me to do a mobility routine or something there because it means a lot to me. But what about these people who say they don't have any goals, don't really know why they're doing something? It's more of like they actually think about it. It's like sustain sustainability and like longevity that they're probably doing it for. They just see like maybe their parent parents or their grandparents struggle to get upstairs and they're like, hey, I just... I need to do something. So that's like, not me. That's like a like minimum. Right. So it's like, yeah, like you have to get people to lift weights. You have to give some sort of stimulus to those people who don't have that performance realm. Cause when they step into the gym, that's their performance realm. For, for sure. I also think the interesting thing or the fun thing about these people is that if you have like a person in their forties, fifties, sixties, but that has a very low training age, they likely aren't coming in with any of the bad patterns that like you and I have developed from weightlifting, the like yeah. excessive midline tension, breath holding. So you can probably get them doing things like a Patrick squat or like a single arm cable column row and like breathing through that. And it, it they end up being really effective mobility drills until load reaches a certain point, at which case they're, they're probably not, not that anymore. So I, I do think that's the one bucket of people where you actually can get really, really nice changes to movement capability and fitness attributes, um, especially like during the first, I don't know, like six to 18 months of working with someone. We'll be back to the show in just a minute. One of the big themes of this show is the importance of continued development if you're a trainer or therapist. If you listen to Michelle and I, chances are you're not the type of practitioner to take everything they learn during school at face value. You're curious, hungry, driven, and want to be the best you can be for both your clients and yourself. However, Instagram scrolling and taking weekend courses with three-letter acronyms will only take you so far. You need a mentor, someone to help you make sense of what you've learned, the habits you've developed as a practitioner, and where your knowledge or application gaps may be. I can say for certain that I've had the good fortune of standing on the shoulders of some giants in our field, Lance Goyke, Zach Couples, my now co-host Michelle, and Bill Hartman, to name a few. More than explicit knowledge, what I gained is a framework of how to take in new information, process and reflect, and iterate continuously, something that a three-letter acronym course won't be able to teach you. As such, it's my pleasure to act as a mentor for clinicians and trainers that can add more structure to their clinical development. Over the course of four 50-minute long sessions, we'll dive into your model, poke and prod for areas of cognitive bias, and assemble the scaffolding for shaping your continual development as a clinician. If this sounds like something that'd be of value to you, shoot me a DM at tim underscore richart underscore dpt on Instagram and include what you'd like help in making sense of. Now, Back to the show. Yeah. And yeah, I agree with this. This is, this is a great point with a gen pop uh, making it a little bit more practical with, for them in that sense. All right. Am I on my number two? I believe so. Great. <laughs> so that is from, I took this initially from the Seth episode when he said, the best thing for studying is working with people every day who are in front of you. So observe, ask questions. This was also reiterated in the Mike Boyle episode. He talks about how he wants his staff to be observant because it's communication opportunities and it provides information about how people move, right? Um, and then also from the Doug episode, um, observing people in regards to you have to be able to explore this gray area between ignoring pain 
training like you're 19, he says, and being myopic about pain. So through that exploration, you have to be observant, ask questions, and be exploratory with your exercise selection, modifications, and adjustments. And you have to be really dialed in with the people that you're working with and the changes that you're making with the people in front of you um, to be able to be really good at that and to just learn from what you're doing every day. We've talked about this before, but I think that it's just a conversation I've had with a lot of young clinicians over the past couple of weeks or past couple of months. But this concept of uh, it's really easy for a practitioner to feel like they know nothing and they need to throw everything out the window. I mean, you see this with like the educational work that you do all the time, I'm sure, where I think that the best way that I've seen people solve this problem is this concept of like, if I'm treating, then I'm treating at, you know, uh, treatment paradigm 1.0, but I'm learning 2.0. And when I design my own training, it's like 1.5. So it's it's always this this ever escalating continuum of as I get more and more comfortable with 2.0, now 2.0 is how I train myself and 1.5 is how I treat other people. But it's always trying to pull in this upward direction. And to Seth's point, we're always using what is in front of us, either from our own like athletic endeavors, movement endeavors, or from what our clients are telling us or showing us to guide that that directionality so that it's not just like, picking things at random on Instagram that are well-marketed or well-produced or, or seem like they would be interesting. But I think that's, it's because I think a lot of people when they, I mean, to put a, like a specific example here, um, five years ago, we were telling everybody to tuck their hips with everything constantly. You remember those days, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and now it's like, we still, we still sometimes tell people to tuck their hips, but also some of the time we're like hinging people and trying to like open up the posterior lower portion of their pelvis. Uh, you could take that paradigm shift and be like, oh my God, I knew nothing. We have to throw everything out. And now I need to like relearn an entirely new system. Or you could say, no, that system was probably really valuable but it probably did a less than adequate job of serving this particular presentation. So can I take some pieces out of that and now plug in what I think might be more appropriate? And you're always, I mean, you're always testing things with your clients, testing things with yourself. And I think in that way, like in 10, 20, 25 years, we can really have formed something that makes a lot of sense in our minds that's coherent that's authentic um that isn't like you know whatever the whatever the trendy in vogue biomechanical model of the year happens to be yeah and i think this is also a good point for i think about movement standards of like i have this idea in my head or i see on instagram all these videos that like people are doing perfect squats and i'm like okay i need to get someone to do it that way right but then I just lose sight of the person who's in front of me. Maybe squatting isn't going to look like that for them. So I have to figure out how it's going to look like for this person for right now, right? Maybe this person will succeed a little bit more with a wider stance or to your point, squatting to a box or holding the weight a certain way. And that's okay for now. It's like you have to be able to see the person in front of you and be okay with what they're doing and then know that like how you can, you know, move forward from there instead of being like, okay, they either can't do this or, you know, just going to like throw this exercise out if they can't do it perfectly kind of a thing. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, which has been sitting on my yeah. bookshelf for like a year and a half. Um, and he took, you know, I mean, the entire book, as, as the title suggests, is like his principles for navigating life and business. And he's really quick to point out, like, these aren't things he decided on when he was 25 and then just kept up with till he was 70. Like, these are things that seemed important to him enough to warrant writing down. But when new information came to light, he was very, very quick to modify the principles and continue to evolve them over time. And in that way, the principles themselves get stronger and stronger. But it has to be one of these things where it's like, you know, uh, like strong convictions loosely held. Like we we can never hold anything so tight that it becomes 
all that we do. And that's, we've talked about this before, like in regards to some of the three letter acronym or four letter acronym systems. But I really think that is the danger in going too far in any one particular direction is then sort of just becoming a servant of that and trying to make everything fit into that model versus saying, no, this model is great. In fact, I think it's 80% correct, but now I need to go out on my own and find a different tribe, a different biomechanical lens, and just keep stacking these things longitudinally over time. Yeah. Um, I actually, whoever takes my strategy course group class from now, I mail them his guided journal book that kind of goes with that book. It's called Principles, Your Guided Journal, How to Create Your Own Principles to Get the Work in Life You Want. And so that's kind of like a good follow-up resource for that book. Yeah, I, I love that. If you, if you uh, got an extra, mail it my way. <laughs> perfect. I have a stack. All right. Um, I think you're at number one right here. I think I am at my number one. Uh, this one does have a pithy title. I'm going to call it Kintsugi. And this is something that I think got brought up in conversations with Seth, with Sam Leffers, and with Doug Kachijan. Um, but if, if anyone uh, didn't listen to any of those episodes, the so Kintsugi is a Japanese word. And the meaning is that we take like a, a piece of pottery or a piece of art and we break it. So this thing is in shards. And now we put the shards back together using molten gold. And the entire idea here is this put back together piece of pottery with the molten gold kind of cracks is actually more valuable than the original piece of pottery was. And I think for anyone that is in the midst of their own persistent pain journey, uh, this tends to be a really, really helpful reframe or visualization because it suggests that like you're not like things aren't on hold right now because you're broken. Uh, a lot of your innate humanness and the value in life is precisely because you're broken and how you choose to respond to what's going on in your day to day. Uh, to what your body is telling you is really going to influence, you know, how how much benefit you're able to derive from a training session or week or month. Um, and that you're kind of, I don't know, in my mind, it's like you're kind of, you're walking the path now, you're doing the thing now, you're training now. All of it is happening. It's not something that we're just going to put on ice until we stumble upon the magic sequence of three exercises that's going to regain movement or until you get the magic surgery. Like, like you are Kintsugi. Like you are this simultaneously broken yet incredibly capable human being. And you should act as such and train as such and enjoy as full of a movement existence as you possibly can while always striving to you know, uh, go higher in the realms of performance, movement capacity, capacity, enjoyment of movement, enjoyment of life. So that was, I, I put it at number one, because while I don't think it's that biomechanically interesting, I think in terms of like emotionally resonant points, this is probably far and away uh, the most impactful thing that I took out of season three of, of our podcast. That's amazing. So I listened to the podcast Modern Wisdom a decent amount. I think Chris Williamson hosts it. But he makes names up for specific ideas so he remembers them better. And I think that's a great strategy to have. So clever you. Um, when you listed that out, I was just thinking specifically of what Seth was talking about in this regards. The key word of momentum, of forward momentum, moving forward in space constantly. And like that's the goal. And that kind of to me, connects what Doug, Sam, and like Seth were talking about. Yeah, and I think momentum can be illusory if you think that it has to mean that year to year you're lifting more weight or running a certain yeah. distance faster. Um, once you acknowledge that, like even regardless of injury, that's never going to be the case. Like eventually we're all going to get, you know, we're all going to get older and we're just not going to be able to do certain stuff anymore or do stuff at the same level. There's a there's a chasm of difference between just not doing anything uh, and continuing to try to like chase PRs. And once you accept that the the gray area between those two is where most people are in their journey, 
then you can just, you can live there and you can say like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to rear foot elevated split squat my body weight anymore, but that doesn't mean I, I'm, I still can't get benefit from some sandbag zercher hold split squats. That, that doesn't mean that I still can't experience these different movements and patterns and positions in novel ways over time, continue to combine them in ways that challenge me and get me a little bit of the thing that I want. And to your point, like that is momentum. That is momentum going in the direction of, at the very least, health and potentially even performance. Um, but that's a really like that type of inertia is absolutely critical in keeping up, no matter what your circumstances. No, that's awesome. I, I think there's a difference between momentum and progression, which you kind of pointed out, and it connects to your fantastic article that you wrote for Tony, Tony Genicor's uh, site, "The Illusion of Infinite Progress," and it. it we talked about this through the season in different episodes, but like doing it because it feels good and be, it needs to be done, but it, things really don't need to be progressed all the time. And I think that also is a massive paradigm shift in this profession of like, you're just completely told like everything needs to be progressed or regressed like constantly. There's one or the other. There's no, no other thing. It can't just do it to do it or if it feels good right but momentum is doing those things that need to be done and feel good consistent consistently and frequently and that changes other things in your life for the positive so now you create this little loop moving forward that's what it means to me it, yeah ab absolutely i mean it's this idea that if you're working with a runner who's never strength trained before maybe getting her deadlift from nothing to her body weight is going to be an absolute boon to her performance but then continuing to attempt to progress that linearly yeah. using load and you and i see this all the friggin' time like it's almost a story i'm bored with at this point where it's just like runner starts strength training they get better runner keeps strength training they stiffen up get worse and now they're injured and now because they love strength training they want to keep doing strength training but they're not able to link the two in their mind as to, you know, potentially one of the major influences of their current cycle of injury is the fact that they over-strength trained. And so it's like, uh, I think that it's really easy to get into this like, like illusory infinite progression. But if you view progression as just the ability to continue to do a few activities that you really enjoy well, I mean, for me currently climbing, for you currently running, then progression can mean a lot of things. And a lot of things can you know, rightfully fit within the context of a training program if all we're trying to progress is our skill and our enjoyment of like the primary craft. Yeah, that that's that's well said. Um, and I think that's a, a great po point, especially to communicate going back to that in the beginning with our clients. All right, my that number one here, final point, little, final takeaway. Dr little drum roll action? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My last takeaway of the season is kind of alluding to what we just talked about. Um, what is practical is optimal. You like that title right there. Um, so working within a client's lives and subjective progression is just, if not more important than objective. I'm taking a quote from you. A program only makes sense in the context of a person's life. You sound pretty good there. Wise man. <laughs> And we had every like so many guests kind of reiterate this point. Like Tony Jenicor talked about progression is made at 80% like consistency and frequency. Just coming in, showing up, and doing the thing. Doesn't need to be crazy, just getting your reps in. Mike Boyle talked about the importance of keeping people training. So modify exercises as much as you want, just don't exclude them. Um and Lucy talked about this in regards to, we talked about training training strategies for persistent pain clients. And one of the biggest points we talked about, and I had a few client examples here, is finding a core program that clients can be successful at doing and you can always fall back on. So I even have two clients in my mind who are persistent pain clients and we found things that they can always do. So if they come in and they have a flare up or something, we can kind of revert back and we can try different things when they're they're feeling good. But very 
we introduce novelty very slowly um, and, and we limit that quite a bit. We kind of stick with that core program. I cannot tell you how impactful it has been for me to find things that I can always do in the gym, no matter how my hip or how my back is feeling on a given day. And this is, I mean, honestly, credit to, again, Bill for the month I spent with him earlier in the year, because I think he really helped to define what some of these activities were. But for me, it's like a low box step up, a split squat, hanging from a bar, a high plank to a down dog, and like some kind of a uh, like a single arm dumbbell floor press. I have never in my life not been able to do those things. And if I mix and match those things, I can get in something that approximates a pretty substantial training session. And of course, like I want more movement diversity. I want more loading diversity. Absolutely. That's the long-term goal. But to go back to the point that we were making earlier about momentum, it's like if you try a new activity and you're like, ah, that doesn't feel great on my knee today, and you know that you have something that you can fall back on, it's like, okay, we're going to do like five rounds of split squat iso holds. And that person can walk out of the gym with a smile on their face, with a slight burn in their legs, feeling like they did something productive for the rest of the day. There is a massive difference between that and person walking into the gym, trying an activity, it doesn't feel good, and then they leave. So it's like, it, I mean, it's it's Tony's trainable menu concept in some ways, but it's like, it's beyond that. It's like, discover what exercises are probably going to be there for you, almost regardless of circumstance. And I think, you know, the ones that I just listed are a pretty safe starting spot for most people. Of course, that's going to be different for, you know, everyone like mileage may, may vary. But if you can really get a person to buy into that notion that there will always be some stuff that they can do, then they're a person that trains for life. And that's that's sort of that's what we're trying to create is a person that, you know, doesn't just show up to the gym because it's a thing that's good for them. It's like they show up to the gym because it's a part of their identity. It's it's a, it's core to who they are. Yes. And a key to that is not being so rigid with your training plans, especially you see this a lot in young trainers. And we've all done this. Like we have a plan in front of us and we stick to it versus like the practical part of that is something that gets it done. So being willing to change things when you need to, just to be able to get people through the session and get them training consistently. That's the most. Yeah. And I, I don't know, you know, I think that there's just like really interesting things having to do with mindset, but like I've gone through month long phases where literally all I've done is split squat iso holds and hanging from a bar and have not noticed any substantial, I don't like, uh, you know, decrement to my body composition or mindset. And it's like, those are very, like, those are very limited activities, uh, but there's something to be said for the fact that like, I internally know that I'm training and I did training that day. And so it's like, I continue to carry with me this mindset of like, I'm a person who trains, I'm an athlete. And there is just like, I think if you took blood work on a person like that, it's going to be more favorable than a person that's sort of like turtling and going more and more inward because they feel like they can't do anything. Yes, absolutely. And I also think there's a difference between attaining and maintaining and a person like you and I, we can change our training plans a lot, but we've attained so much that we can maintain those qualities for a lot longer. And going back to like the general population, but keeping them training is going to help them attain things, one, but we still need to push them, right? Before we can get them into something that they can maintain over time. For sure. And I think, you know, this season we we've talked about essentially people with like persistent pain tend to have poor movement quality or poor movement options, but you can extrapolate this out to like gen pop that just has like poor time management or like, like time freedom where if you teach them like, no, get in, do like a five minute mobility thing and do 10 minutes, a 10 minute superset of two primary exercises and then leave the amount of clients I've started there. And then being, being able to build up to like four full length training sessions a week it's it's very, very useful to no longer conceive of training as like it has to be a 75-minute thing done five days a week. Yes, perfect. Um, awesome. So we crushed our three takeaways from season three and some practical strategies for that. I can't believe it's over, but do want to mention again, make sure you go get that free ebook uh, that I made from all these takeaways from season three. 
And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And well, we'll be back maybe in a few weeks for season four. Few weeks, few months, and we'll have something good for you guys. <laughs> but uh, again, as I said at the beginning of the episode, thank you so much if you've you know if you've listened to um, uh, most or in fact any episodes of this season. We very much appreciate your interest. Um, be sure to drop a review wherever you listen to Fine Podcast, and really looking forward to yeah doing another season of this. So I, I thank you as well, Michelle. Right back at you. This has been a very fun. Show off your sweatshirt here. We both got our new reframe. <laughs> sweatshirts on snazzy all right thanks tim and uh i'm so excited for season four so we'll be back then stay tuned guys if you're enjoying what michelle and i are putting together here we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice reviews help us climb the rankings which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward the intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.